HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Sam Edwards and S. Wallace Edwards and Sons out of Surrey, Virginia, who have been in business for the past 82 years. So uh, here we are with Brian Kenny. Brian, can you hear me? Yeah, um, not too well, but I can hear you. All right, well, I'll try and get closer to the mic, but um, we're going to start off our 20 questions with our farmer. Um, you are the farmer or the beef, uh, the manager of the beef program at, Herod, at the Hearst Ranch in San Simeon, California. And I'd like to start off by asking you what the history of your land is. Well, um, it originally started out as a, as a Mexican land grant. Like a lot of big pieces in California, or pretty much all the big pieces in California, um, George Hearst, uh, the first, who was the, the actually senator from California, eventually Diane Feinstein has his seat now, but he bought the ranch in 1865, and um, over the years, I mean, it, it, he was a he was a miner, uh, timber man ended up getting into livestock and, and a bunch of other things and, and actually got into publishing. The, the apocryphal story um, is that he won the San Francisco Examiner as payment for a gambling debt. Hmm. And that's how the Hearst Corporation got into, um, got into publishing. Uh, it was originally a land, livestock, timber, and mining company. Uh, mining first, actually. And so the... Part of the corporation that I work for, which is the Sunny Cal Land Livestock Timber Division, um, operates the San Simeon Ranch, which is where Hearst Castle is, which was what Senator George Hearst bought in 1865. And we have the Jack Ranch, which is our valley ranch, which was purchased in 1966. So the history of the Hearst Ranch is that it started out as a, you know, a cow-calf operation, really, um, and uh, so we raised cattle to sell calves to other other people, basically. And, and the branded beef program that I'm running started about uh, about 2005. And um, and basically, what we're doing is raising hormone antibiotic-free grass-fed cattle. That we turn into beef um, through you know humane means. We're a humane processor, humane handler. Um, and we're also certified sustainable by Food Alliance. And you can learn about us on, uh, on the Internet at HearstRanch.com. Um, basically, we have a history of doing the right thing, I think, as an operation, and that's really personified by the fact that uh, Steve Hurst, who I work for and the Hearst Corporation, turned the San Simeon Ranch into the largest conservation easement in, in California history, at least up to that point. Um, and that's about how it, many acres? It's 80,000 acres. 80,000 acres. And then the Jack Ranch is 75,000 acres. Wow, so that is the largest land easement. Um. It, it, was the, it, it was the largest conservation easement in California. There's another ranch that's in the process that'll be bigger, the Tahone Ranch, but it was a huge deal, and basically what happens is you... you uh, you sell the development rights of the property to an easement holder. And so the San Simeon Ranch is going to be a cattle operation in perpetuity. So we're building a beef program for, for forever. Hmm. And so the concepts of st sustainability and a lot of things that are kind of fuzzy and, and nebulous and hard to define are, are rooted in a concept of 
you know, forever or for 100 years or whatever. That's how I think about how the business that we're building. So this plan for the future would tie into the asking the question, why is farming and farmers so important? Um, it's because everybody needs to eat. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really simple to me. I, I was asked at a, at a panel at Slow Food Nation if I felt that feedlots were immoral mm-hmm. and the you know, confined animal feeding operations were immoral. And, and my answer is very simple. If you want to break it down in terms of morality... Hunger's immoral, hmm. and it's you know anybody that's that's working to feed people um, by virtue of that fact is moral. So I think that agriculture is the backbone of this country, and and um, and this is kind of an anachronistic viewpoint, or at least it was until about five or six months ago. But when you look at where we're going as a nation. Um, our population's increasing. The average age of farmers is going up. I think it's 56 now, according to the USDA. I mean, we need to build a model for for people that shows that uh, large, you know, large landholders can make a business out of managing the land. And we're not quite there yet, but I think that the intent is there, and I think that we're producing a very, very high quality, healthy beef. And we're selling it through, you know, through you from through Heritage Foods and Williams Sonoma and HerstRanch.com and in our local kind of fresh program on the on the Central Coast. And we're really trying to build a local food system. And, um, and so, just, there's a lot of high-minded stuff there. But also, it just comes down to we have um, we have these land holdings, and and there's a way. To make them work and to produce food on them, and so that's that's what we're trying to do is build that model so that you know of agriculture that's that's philosophically based that works well and and uh, you know it's a challenge. I mean, this, this industrial food ship set sail about 60 years ago, and I'm 35, and I don't I don't know. I certainly know that this is not going to turn around quickly. It's it's you don't turn around an aircraft carrier in a bathtub. Definitely not. You know, well, we're going to have to do this over some time. But, as you were saying, um, with I think it's really important just to to say you know two things. I mean, number one, anybody like the farmers. Farmers have a bad name in this country. Um, the small farmers don't, but the big the bigger ones do. And I've worked for bigger ag, ag outfits and. You get stuck in this business because you can't, um, again, it's like turning around an aircraft carrier, but you can't switch lanes real fast. I mean, I was a manager at a prune, walnut, almond, olive, alfalfa operation up in Tehama County called Pacific Farms and Orchards, and we made an olive oil called Pacific Sun Olive Oil, which <laughs> they're still making, and uh, and it was a great experience, and they're great people, and we're what I would call a middle-sized farm. I mean, not mm-hmm. huge, uh, but but managing and owning about 3,000 acres. So well, pretty one, good size. One thing you said that was quite interesting is that the uh, average age of farmers is going up. One thing that I think uh, Heritage is noticing as a trend of our supporters is that the age of these chefs that are wanting to support the ways of farming that you promote um, are decreasing. So we're actually having younger chefs, and maybe that will lead to uh, more interest in younger farmers to help yeah, promote. I mean, that would be the best farming. of all possible worlds. And I, I'm starting to see it to a certain extent, but I think, you know, the main thing is is that – and and Certainly the current economic climate that we're in makes reality a lot more palatable. And the reality is that, you know, if you want to be a farmer, you're going to work 60 or 70 hours a week, and you're not going to make a whole bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can uh, we can look at right now, I mean, it, when I got out of college or dropped out of graduate school in 1996, I think it was, and I got into the dot-com world, I mean, it was a different time, and and I always wanted to get into agriculture. But the only thing that got me into agriculture was that I was, ended up being a freelance writer, and a lot of my business was out of the World Trade Center, which disappeared on September 11th. And so I was at a point where I had I went from having a very good livelihood to none. And fortunately, my best friend Brendan Flynn, who had, had that Pacific Farms, wanted help doing this olive oil thing. So. 
I'm only here because of extenuating circumstances. And I, it was like being a teacher. I always wanted to be a teacher, but I, I've never been able to justify the lifestyle switch, you know, because they don't get paid much. And, and uh, so I guess this is a, the long and short of this is that farmers, um, like if we were growing commodity crops and at Pacific Farms, and commodity crops do not leave you much room for error, much margin for error. And if you have, you know, with, with tree crops, there's really only one efficient way to grow, which is in a monoculture. And there are some things you can do in this, you know, you have these lines of trees, which are called centers, and you've got, you've got these strips in between, and, and you've got your, um, you can crop things in between your rows of trees, but you're still essentially in a monoculture. And, and the only way to farm nuts is, right now, is mechanized. I mean, there's no, there's no other way to have it make sense. And if you've got capital expense on equipment, if you want to do something like go organic and you have a thousand acres of almonds, well, that's really hard to do because you got to make it three years before the certification's applicable and you're out of the transition. And in that time, you're going to lose 30% yield. And, you know, so it's, it's really, it's a very nuanced thing. And now in protein production, um, the, the thing that I've heard a lot of talk about, and you guys touched on it before I got on, was can we feed the world with heritage breeds? And, and I think the question is probably yes, but, and here's the big but, probably in capital letters. And I hope that this leads into my next question because I think we might be going the same direction. So what is the big but? The big but is that consumption patterns are, are going to have to change. Consumption patterns. And here's the deal. In the beef industry, the beef industry in California started out as hide and tallow, where cattle were killed for their hides and their fat and their bones. And there were a lot of products that were made out of that. And the meat was a byproduct. Mm-hmm. Last year, uh, the margin on, per head margin on cattle in this country was essentially the drop value, which is the hide and the tallow. So we've... We're still in a hide-and-tallow business. And this struck me the other night. I woke up in the middle of the night, and I had this thought, because I, I think I live in a spreadsheet. Um, you know, it's very, very complicated business to run for a media company, this, this beef business. But I had this flash in the middle of the night that we're still a hide-and-tallow industry, essentially, because... Everything is driven by the packer price, and, and, you know, this is in the commodity side. Now, the tough part is that everything has scaled to that level, including processing. And so, you know, Joel Saladin and and Will Harris could tell you because he's building his own plant. And, you know, this is a huge thing to overcome. But whatever the case, we would love, in the niche, we would love to say that the industry and the commodity side doesn't affect us, but it most certainly does. In our fresh program, we sell at 10 to 20% above prime prices, USDA prime prices. Well, this is why I would, you know, ask who are the members of your production chain that you interact with that are most important to your survival? Because it might not necessarily be the people on your ranch. It may be the people that are helping you distribute the product or get the word out that, you know, this beef that you're raising is indeed, uh, you know, a superior product to something that they could be buying elsewhere. Yeah, well, I'll tell you. I mean, the people that are key to our success, other than my team, which I should mention my team, Steve Hurst is, is our my boss, he's, he's our leader, and he's the VP of uh, Sunny Cal and West Coast Properties, essentially, for the Hearst Corporation. Cliff Garrison's the ranch operations manager for both ranches. Um, Roland Camacho's our production manager. Jeff Langford's our sales manager, and I'm the basically the beef division manager. And our, we've, we were awarded Commercial Beef Producer of the Year by the California Cattlemen's Association this, in 2008, which was really blew me away um in terms of our key vendors we have a bunch of them um preferred meats bala Karande, who i think you guys also work with in the bay area yeah we're big is, we're is very thankful for preferred meats <laughs> fulfillment and distributor guys and then john caney 
in San Luis Obispo, Caney Foods is our is our master distributor. The thing for me about building this business is I wanted to do business with people, people like you, people like Patrick. And Heritage is a huge part of our our deal too. I mean, you guys have have done a great deal to spread the word about what we're doing, um, and we take a bullet for you. Um, Thank you. But the the thing is that this in this business. I want to be able to do business with people I can sit down across a, a table with and look them in the eye. And the world, whether or not we want to admit it, the world is run by lawyers and accountants and ultimately and insurance people, but I kind of put them in there. And, and that's just the way things have evolved. And um, I, my dad and my brothers are lawyers, and I, I don't really have a problem with that reality. It's just the way it is. But what it means is that the other business relationships that we have should be value-based and principle-based and and relationship-based. I think it's just hugely important if you have a problem to be able to sit down with the person you're doing business with and look them in the eye and talk about it honestly. I think it, that's the way things used to be done. That's kind of the cowboy way. I think that's the farmer way. That's the way I was raised. Um, so that's, you know, we're lucky with some of the, the people that we do business with. I mean, we're still stuck in this place where there are only one or two facilities that'll that'll you know process our cattle and and uh where we can do that with any kind of reasonable outcome and that's a huge problem um i think that you know one of the things that that makes this business difficult is that we've got 60 years of box beef you know or the evolution toward box beef and when i say box beef for the listeners, that means that um, in the in the old days, cattle used to move in halves um, on rails, and mm-hmm. so when you go to the supermarket, there was actually a butcher there, and a half beef would come in, and they would break it down, and and there was a real artistry involved in that. Now, how it works is that um, your cattle go to meet Elvis, as I like to say. That's my euphemism for harvest or whatever you want to call it. And um, which is done humanely. Uh, that's one great thing about our packers that they have submitted to every audit that we've wanted. And there have been many. I think we've done four different third-party audits there. But um, uh, they, the, the cattle leave the plant in boxes, muscles, you know, whole muscles like your lip-on ribeye or your zero-by-one strip loin, which will turn into your New York steaks, and your tenderloin, which will turn into your filet mignon. So. The artistry of all the different cuts that you could do has been lost to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, this goes back to that point of that you really have to work really, really hard to escape the commodity uh, model because the regulations have put you in with the commodity model, and you can't succeed in this business if you try to compete with the commodity model under the terms of the commodity model. So these things to me, like these meat CSAs, and um, those sorts of things where people are actually taking a stake in agriculture by buying a whole animal or shares of a whole animal, that to me is a great step toward the future. Yep. It's another well, form of infrastructure. a whole car, as it were. I don't want to be a junkyard. I don't want to just sell, you know, steering wheels and driver's seats. I would like to sell the whole, the whole car. So that's what we're trying to do. And, and um, I think that that's where guys like uh, us, folks operations like ours need to be on the branded side and that's a huge shift Mm -hmm. but again to your point heather the younger chefs seem hip to this they seem ready for the challenge there's been less of uh uh less of an industrial bias i guess or or a you know that inbred bias toward picking up a book and ordering a box of something and you know again another huge challenge is that most of the food distribution in this country is done by big companies, and I'm not going to name them. <laughs> no. well, I don't want to get in trouble. But one thing doesn't that mean they're bad. But ultimately, industrialized food service distribution is um, like having a hotel. You know, your warehouse is like a hotel, and every box that moves through there is is like a you know a customer that's staying there, and you want them to stay as short as possible because you want to move as many people, you know, as many boxes through that plant as possible. So the whole box model of produce for, for fruit, for, um, 
for protein, certainly for fish, you know, everything has kind of come down to that model and, and to this efficiency model. What we're doing is innately inefficient, and I realize this every time I do a budget. I mean, every time I go through my budget, I realize that, God, you know, our cost of gains in the cattle industry, you look at your cost of gains. That's basically your cost basis. And so you have a calf, and you want to, and it's born at, you know, maybe 200 pounds or something, and you want to get it to, or 140 pounds. You want to get it to 1,050 or 1,100 pounds on grass. So every pound to get to that finished weight costs you money. And our cost, right. I well, think, to really compare grass-fed production to the industrial model, I think you have to go back to August, July and August of, of, of 2008, when corn was six bucks a bushel and diesel was five bucks a Just gallon. like Jeff May was talking to us about earlier, um, and you know how the commodity pricing really affects our farmers. One thing that you have going for you in California and the climate that you were just discussing are the taste profiles that are unique to the foods you raise, which is where these young chefs who are putting their money where their mouths are, you know, no pun intended, are supporting the work you do to, you know, get this lesser yield from the cattle because they are on your grasses that, you know, you have to rotate their paddocks and you know tell us a little bit more about the taste profiles unique to the foods you raise and why you think that this is going to help your beef program continue to grow well um we have i think there are a couple things just in general about grass-fed beef i think um it's it's uh it's more nutritional or more nutritious than um conventional beef uh higher levels of omega-3 by an order of magnitude and, and more tocopherol, vitamin E, more um, CLAs, uh, actually, which can actually lower blood pressure and things like that. But I think that we're, I mean, what I'm seeing is that people want to buy something from somebody they can trust. And our, you know, we're essentially a corporate farm. Um, I work for a corporation. The Hearst Corporation is owned by the Hearst Family Trust. Uh, we have a board of directors. The chairman of the board of directors is is uh, George Hearst the second, who's Steve, my my boss's dad, and and they're really good people. Um, they have undertaken this project out of a philosophical belief that that we'll get the market to catch up to what we're doing. Um, I think we've got the best production team in the business. Um, I'm trying to take our sales and marketing to that same level. Yeah, we've um, seen you on Twitter. I'm, I'm, yeah, and I'm on Twitter, exactly, <laughs> and Facebook, you know. But um, I think, you know, it takes people, and I want to give a shout-out to the folks at Roberta's um, on behalf, on my behalf and on Steve Hurst's behalf. Um, yeah, Steve was just in here last week. I know he had a great time. He did, and, and this is the beauty of the chain. If you look at what we're doing, there's one argument, like the counter-argument that I hear. I was at a sustainability conference for Food Alliance a couple weeks ago, and some of the larger food distribution people were, you know, they're kind of laughing. <laughs> we're insignificant statistically in the beef industry at Hearst Ranch. We're statistically insignificant. We're an outlier. I mean, we don't fit demographic tendencies or trends. <laughs> but if you look at the connections that we've made um, between our ranch and people, very, very diverse sets of people. And I think Roberta's really shows where this is going. And anybody in New York that hasn't gone to Roberta's, if you want to look at the difference between a commodity and a specialty product, I think at one, one level it comes down to soul and pizza from Roberta's. That's a, that's a soulful expression. I mean, I, would I agree felt with like that. With chefs, you understand who they are by eating their food, and that's one of the most beautiful, warmest places on earth, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, and my boss, who could eat anywhere in Manhattan, that's that's one of his favorite places. And because the quality of the food, the people, and just the whole ethos and pathos. So the the difference to me, all these things. The difference is it's, it's soul and purpose over efficiency. That's the difference between commodity and niche. And um, I think where we're going, we have a product that tastes like our ranches. Um, that, the niche of people that cares about that is small. 
we have a product that is philosophy first. Um, we're like I said, we're a humane producer. We're certified as a humane producer by Humane Farm Animal Care, and uh, Adele Douglas is a good friend of our program who started Humane Farm Animal Care. That's another operation that's working from a perspective of principle and high-mindedness. Uh, we're a sustainable operation. I think sustainable means responsible to me, and, and I think Food Alliance, who is our sustainability certifier, agrees. They have a pragmatic program. It's based on continual improvement, which is how I like to run our operation. Mm-hmm. Um, our, uh, we're also certified as a grass-fed producer by Food Alliance. They have a new grass-fed certification tool. So I believe in these grass-fed certifications and these sustainable certifications and these humane certifications because we're having third parties come in and verify what we're doing and because i think it's easy talk is cheap mm-hmm. and um and the beauty uh, that i see about our operation is that um and, and i'm biased but i know that everybody in our operation is philosophically bought in to this idea of doing things the right way we have at a very basic level, we have an opposable thumb and a conscience. That's why we are humane producers of livestock and humane handlers of horses and dogs. And we believe in the value of the individual. That's why we take care of our employees. All this leads to a much different type of operation to try to manage on a financial basis. So the niches of people that care about all these things individually is pretty small. I mean, it's a small number of people, but through the power of the the Internet and a lot of these other social networking tools and through affinities with outfits like Heritage Foods USA and Heritage Radio Network, I think we can, all of us in the audience and in the world out here operating that believe in these principles can can get together and do things that will make changes. And one of the challenges that I have in explaining my business is that it's hard to understand it if you're the kind of mind that only understands things that you read. And the way that business school works is that when somebody creates a model that works once, and it it really almost doesn't even have to work once, as the first dot-com boom showed us, um, other people will write about it and teach it, and it becomes a model. And so that's what I'm trying to do is create a model that's financially viable for the production and distribution and sales of you know, philosophy-based um, products. And, and a model case, that can humane, handle. sustainable grass-fed beef. As well as a model that can grow and change with um, everything else that's changing in the world around us. Like, for instance, we were talking about grass-fed beef and, you know, the taste profiles unique to your food, you being off the coasts of California. Do you think that these changing global weather patterns are going to be uh, affecting the food you grow? And oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't i got to tell you, honestly, I haven't had enough time to pay attention to it to really, really think about it, but it, invariably, there's going to be, if there are changes, there are going to be huge changes. I mean, there little swings of a couple degrees are, are a really big deal, and so, yeah, I mean, we're, the, the thing about it is that we're resource-based. You know, the, again, that first question you asked was, such a heavy one. What's the difference between commodity and, and this kind of niche or artisan thing? I mean, we are we are tied innately to a resource. We have a limited supply of product. Um, the, the industrial or commodity side is kind of built on the basis of unlimited availability. So we're tied to our resources. As events change, as microclimates change, I mean, that's going to change our business. And so who knows? I don't, I don't know. Honestly, don't know what the future leads. Um, it, it reminds me of when I was a graduate student in Greek and Roman archaeology, and I used to kind of dream of the day. Well, there's nothing kind of about it. I dreamt of the day when the lost books of Homer would be found to invalidate <laughs> the thousands and thousands of tomes that I had to read about the you know, Zahamerish and Fraga and all these other scholarly things. I think that that idea that nothing is forever mm-hmm you know, is is important thing to remember when you're working toward forever. And it just requires some mental acuity. And I like the fact that the conditions in my business and my job change on a daily basis. It drives me nuts, but it definitely keeps your brain 
working. That keeps um, you interested, keeps it fun and exciting for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, as you know, I mean, from uh, from working together, I I really think that this is a this is a game. This is a game for people with a young mind and an open mind because they're they're not. I mean, that's the whole thing that this social networking stuff and all this other stuff has taught me is that there's there's no model right now. Things are in total flux, and and uh, you just have to try a lot of different things and keep your mind open. I completely agree. And you know, I would ask. Um, hopefully, this isn't the case, but there must be some things that keep you up at night about your farm. Are there things that worry you that you just never know what you're going to find in the morning? Yeah. Well, I mean, the funny thing about my job. Um, and I, I think I learned from Brendan Flynn, who I'd mentioned before, when I first got into agriculture, we had an olive crop in 2001 that was very, very significant. I mean, it was a huge crop, and I was very excited about getting it off the trees, but it wasn't to the degree of ripeness that we wanted for the flavor profile of olive oil that we wanted to produce, so we left it on, and, and, and uh, I made that decision. And, of course, um, the next week... We had a huge windstorm and probably lost 20% of the crop. And while this windstorm and rainstorm was happening, I was, I guess, noticeably nervous and perturbed. And Brendan said to me very sagaciously, there's nothing you can do. Just let go. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, there's nothing I can do. He said, well, okay, yeah, you can go to Walmart and you can go buy a bunch of umbrellas, but it's not going to do any good, you know. Right. Nature's in charge. So things that I worry about, um, I mean, I learned that lesson, luckily, because I'm, I operate in between San Francisco and our two ranches, and I have to go, I mean, I'm on the road a lot. Um, so I'm not in a day-to-day on-the-ground management position. Mm-hmm. It's a little more detached than that. I'm responsible for, for numbers, and, and especially when things don't go right. Um, but the things I worry about are, honestly, somebody getting hurt. I mean, this is a dangerous business. Mm-hmm. Um, ranching's a dangerous business. I, I worry about our the safety of our employees, um, which makes me feel like an adult, I guess. Um, I do worry about, I still do worry about rain. I mean, I don't stay awake at night about it, but I know, um, I know what's going to happen if I don't get it or, or if it comes at the wrong time. Definitely. And so... Like I say, I live in a spreadsheet kind of in my mind, and I, I know what variables changing here are going to do to the bottom line, and, I, and I'm trying to run a business and, um, as best I can. Um, but mainly the things I worry about are our are people and our animals. I, I, uh, there's a natural, um, well, there's a, there's a food chain. I mean, there are mountain lions. There are coyotes that will eat calves. There are mountain lions that will kill do you have a high interaction of wildlife on your land? I'm sorry? Is there a lot of wildlife on your land that interacts with the livestock that you guys are producing? Yeah, yeah. We have, um, well, I mean, at San Simeon, you know, W.R. Hurst had the largest largest private zoo in the world in the, in the 20s and 30s. So we have a herd of zebras. We have um, some Afri- or, uh, Indian, I guess they're like, they're like elk. They're called sandbar. We have udads, which are like a mountain goat. And are these guys all running wild on your land? Yeah, yeah. Huh. I mean, they're out there. We have Roosevelt elk, a big herd of Roosevelt elk that kind of range between a bunch of ranches. The, the zebras range between a bunch of ranches. They're not ours per se. Um, so are they yeah, interacting with your of, cattle, though? Uh, I'm sorry? Are they interacting with your cattle? Yeah, actually... Uh, I wonder if I have a picture of that on our website. I've got a picture of zebra and a cow. We do we sell it as a postcard, but um, <laughs> yeah, they're they do interact. I mean, it's crazy. It's cra- it's this <laughs> I got to tell you the first time I went to the San Simeon ranch, it was on Halloween when I first started working for hers 2006, I guess. Five, 2005 or 2000, 2006. And I pulled through the gates, and there's the castle up on the hill, and in the, it's dark. You know, it's kind of twilight, and the lights are on at the castle. It looked like a big pumpkin. And um, I was staying at the bunkhouse on the ranch, and I was kind of I was used to bunkhouses that were, 
you know, bunkhouse is maybe dirt floor or, you know, it's it's kind of rough and tumble. This one was designed by Julia Morgan. It's like a hotel. And, and uh, anyway, I went and I took a little walk around and um, I was amazed at how many creatures there were about and um, and just the stuff that that I saw. It was, it was phenomenal. And the Jack Ranch is the same way out there. We've got, you know, more, it's more things like pigs and, and a, a couple kinds of antelope that were introduced by fish and game and have taken pretty good foothold there and um a lot of birds a lot of doves out at the jack ranch so yeah we i mean nature in in agriculture and in, in ranching especially you're so aware of the food chain um because of the fact that you're an active participant in it and also you're trying to manage it you're trying to keep the predators from getting your animals and um you know it's it's a it's a crazy now that I'm explaining it to you it's kind of a crazy <laughs> business but but it's beautiful it's I mean the, of the cycles of nature are beautiful and and uh really awe-inspiring and and I think you know when I was in high tech we played god to a certain extent we created things and software and hardware and all these things and the thing I never liked about it is that when the power goes out none of it exists anymore you know after the backup batteries die and <laughs> And et cetera, the software doesn't really do you any good. So, um, in in agriculture, you're subservient to nature, and as a result, I mean, the, my respect for the awesomeness of the natural processes is is unparalleled. It's it's phenomenal. I mean, we are, although we have had a huge impact on this earth, we're relatively insignificant in the grander scheme of things, and so. You know, I think as a, one of the things that's always really impressed me about Hearst, the Hearst Corporation, is their just the in in relation to our ranching operation is the commitment to to the kind of the sustainability, the to being stewards of the land and and the and the ranch and the environment, and it's a beautiful thing. I definitely I believe that. And um, I'm just going to ask our last question for the Farm Report of today, and that is, what is the highest high and lowest low you have had on your land? Um, in this operation, what's the highest high and the lowest low? Yes. Boy, that's <laughs> that's a tough question. I think, um, boy, the lowest low, you know, there's there are things that happen in the, in the natural process that are disturbing sometimes. And I think the lowest low for me is every time we lose a calf mm. during the calving season. And that's very sad to me. Um, and there's nothing you can do, but I mean, it's just, the, it's just the idea that it's, it's happening on your watch. The other lowest low is anytime something happens to our, our meat, that's not good. Um, and that can be as far, you know, it can be as wide and varied as somebody stealing from you or or somebody just doing a really bad job of cooking it or <laughs> somebody saying bad things about you. I mean, ultimately for me, and I was talking to Cliff and Roland and Jeff and Steve about this yesterday, is that everything we do, from my perspective, should make raising animals and killing them so that people can eat meat worthwhile. It should make it a net positive ethically and morally and all these other ways. And and um, there are a lot of people that I've heard say things to me that are hurtful, that are, you know, they believe they're very zealous about their beliefs that people shouldn't eat animals. And Hell, I listen to Morrissey. I think he said meat is murder. I know he said that. But anyway... The bad things are, are when you feel like all that work that you do is invalidated by something. And so but I don't want to focus on that too much. I'd like to focus on the highest highs. What's the highs. highest high, exactly? The highest highs to me, I mean, this day, calling into this radio station has got to be one of them as far as I'm concerned. Very proud of you guys. Um, Thank you. I think the other thing is, the day that we received our award for Commercial Beef Producer of the Year last November in Reno at John Esquaga's Nugget. 
at the Calamans convention. I didn't think that was going to be as emotional as it was to me, but it was deeply emotional and very moving. I mean, uh, like I said, we're kind of outliers, and to be recognized by our, you know, fellow cattle men and women as the best operation of the year was very, very, very profoundly cool. Well, you deserve it, Brian. You're the best of the best. Oh, man. that Thank you. I'd say likewise to you guys. And thank you for making this possible. I know Hearst has a vast media empire, and the donations you made to make this possible probably uh, make it the lowest of the low of all your empire, and yet, you know, we're striving to be the best. So thanks for giving us uh, that opportunity to uh, start uh, our, our, our thing. Yeah, and I just want to thank the Hearst Corporation for giving me some, some rain to run this business. They've been really really supportive and very cool well say hi to steve for us and thank you um in the future the farm report is going to be three 20 minute bits from farmers answering the same 19 questions so it'll be a real like day in the life or history you know of a, of a specific farm and we couldn't have started with anyone better than uh with brian kenny and um there are going to be many shows on the heritage network uh, just check out heritageradionetwork.com to see the calendar. Uh, it's obviously not 24 hours of content yet, but it hopefully will be soon. And uh, best of all, play around with uh, starting in an hour or two. Play around, search for words, uh, you know, play the audio, and uh, you know, check out the archive. And uh, we will be back next week at noon on Sunday. And we want to, right before we leave, thank Sam Edwards from Edwards, Virginia's Traditions, um, who uh, is a one of the third-generation ham curers and a really great guy. So thanks, everyone. Uh, Nat, engineer. Heather, producer. Brian, farmer. Mark Marabella, co-host. And uh, Steve for developing the technology. Thanks, Brian. Hey, it was a profound honor. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Well, you Bye. play that tarantella, all the hounds will start to roar. The boys all go to hell, and then the Cubans hit the floor. They drive along the pipeline, they tangle to their sore. They take apart their nightmares, and they leave them by the door. Let me fall out of the window with confetti in my hair. Secrets, but I lie about my past and send me off to bed forevermore. Make sure they play my theme song. I guess daisies I have to do. Just get me to New Orleans and pay shadows on the pews. Turn the spit on that pig and kick the drum and let me down. Put my clarinet beneath your bed till I get back in town. Fall out of the window with confetti in my hair. Deal out jacks are better on a blanket by the stairs. I tell you all my secrets, but I lie about my past. So send me off to bed forevermore. Just make sure she's all in calico and the color of a doll. Wave the flag on Cadillac Day and a skillet. On the wall, cut me a switch. Oh, hold your breath till the sun goes down. Write my name on the hood. Send me off to another town. Then just let me fall out a window with confetti in my hair. Deal out jacks a better on a blanket by the stairs. Tell you all my secrets, but I lie about my past. Will you send me off to bed forevermore?